Do you remember the first time you saw a prompt in social media asking about a product you were searching for on some other online platform? How about the first time you received coupons sent from your local grocery that incentivized buying your favorite consumable items? Today's episode of Stats and Stories focuses on the origin, expansion, and future of the data economy. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as a panelist is Brian Tarrant, editor of Significance Magazine. Rosemary Pennington is away. Our guest is writer, comedian, and presenter Tamandra Harkness. Harkness writes and presents BBC Radio for documentaries and is the author of the book Big Data, Does Size Matter? She is a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, a founding member of their special interest group on data ethics as well. More importantly for today's program, she contributed a four-part series in Significance Magazine on the data economy. Tamandra, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's so good to have you here again. I really enjoyed your series of columns. It was really interesting to see this collaboration between Significance and Impact, this magazine of the Market Research Society. But to start our conversation, I'd like to know, how do you define the data economy? That was a quite a tricky point, because when you say the history of the data economy, you think, well, that could be almost anything. I mean, by the time you come up to today, there's very little in the economy that data isn't part of. But I suppose what we had in mind was something a bit more specific, which was the way data works in marketing and market research and distribution and, and public surveys, because... I think that's got a very specific history that goes back to maybe the mid-19th century and obviously comes up to the present day and is only getting more important in the future. So really, data about the public, if you like, and what the public are interested in, what the public want, what the public like and don't like, partly as it applies to marketing products, but there's also a huge crossover with the way that public bodies and governments use data to understand what the public are thinking and wanting and what they might go for or not go for, or even, I mean, lately how we might behave, although that's less a part of the series I wrote. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get back to this issue about describing what you might do versus what you do do as part of as part of what's being <laughs> measured. But I, I'm curious, and, and, you know, both both you and Brian can can probably reflect on this. How did significance end up pairing up with impact? to on this project well uh, i mean for, for that uh link between the two magazines is quite it was quite straightforward so i uh was the launch editor of impact magazine so i helped to, to create it when i worked for the market research society just seven years ago now and so you know i knew the the editor there and i thought well, you know this is something that will be of shared interest to our two audiences market researchers and statisticians and data scientists and i think for us the idea came out of one of our editorial board members had suggested a, a series looking at companies that work with data uh, in, in all their different guises. And as we talked further about it, we thought actually we could we could tell a story about the history and and you know where where it's going next uh, you know for these businesses. And for me, obviously, when I was at Impact, when I was at the Market Research Society, that was about 15 years ago. I started working there, and I felt like it was a really important moment in time for the market research and consumer insight industry because the internet research business was just starting. I remember going to an early meeting where they talked about how to make internet research acceptable to companies. And then we had social media and then uh, mobile phones. And so all these new ways of finding out about people and connecting with people. 
And, you know, I'd been, I haven't worked for in the market research space for seven years. And I actually really liked the idea of the series because I could reconnect with, you know, what was going on now. Nice. Um, and, and, you know, through to managers writing about it, understand, you know, how it was all connected, how the past sort of led to the present and where we're, where we're heading to uh, for the future. So, so Tamandra, how, how did you get, get involved in this project? What, how did it start? Well, I have written various pieces for Brian for significance, ranging from like history of 17th century proto statisticians to interviews with people who are working with data at the moment. Uh, but when he suggested it, I really leapt at it because I'm in the middle of writing my next book, which is really about how everything is personalised and perhaps more importantly, why everything is personalised. So I was already starting to look at that question of what has changed between maybe the early 20th century where obviously adverts were kind of targeted according to what publication they were in or who they were trying to reach. But the difference between that and today when my mobile phone knows kind of where I am and what my browsing history is and can target things as it thinks really specifically to what I want, although maybe not in practice. So I was really interested. And in fact, one of the things I really enjoyed was that crossover between the the, the history of market research and the history of data and being able to hook up with some of the people in the market research society who kind of lived through those key changes and were able to say, oh, well, you know, we used to do this and then this came along and we weren't sure how much it would change everything. And then we found that it did actually change everything. Or some of them going, well, I could see that this was going to change everything. But when I first raised it at my company, they were very sceptical and I had to convince them. <laughs> <laughs> could, could you just give us a little bit of the, the sort of the foundation? I mean, you've referred to history and this kind of this co-evolution in history of both kind of this interest in examining consumer behavior and insight, as well as kind of the data that's being produced. And, and I mean, in fact, you're, the, the first part of this the series is, is subtitled this, the birth of consumer insight. So give us, a, give us a short history lesson. Well, that goes back really to the 19th century when obviously it was all analog, it was all paper and pens. But interestingly, I think the United States really drove that because you had a very widely distributed market and mail order was quite important and people were perhaps quite geographically spread out. And that had a couple of effects, one of which was that mail order and mail order lists became really important and so valuable, in fact, that lists of potential customers, maybe for your mail order medicines, were so valuable that there was a falling out. So two two men in Chicago who used to work together, had a, had a mail order business together, and then they fell out and there was an argument about who got the mailing list and who had stolen data off the mailing list. And one of them ended up shooting the other one dead, which is probably the first lethal crime connected to data theft. <laughs> uh, so you had this thing where mailing lists were really important. And that was obviously about how do you get hold of not only the names and addresses of people, but they would get people to write in with their symptoms. So you had quite sensitive personal data. You had like somebody's name and address and the symptoms they had. And then they would sell these lists on to other suppliers. And, you know, there wasn't much data ethics, I think, in those days. But there was also this other thing going on, which became important later from another direction, which was if you were moving around, people didn't know who you were. 
And so you go into a store and ask for credit, say, you know, I've got money coming in. Can you let me have this stuff on credit and I'll pay you when I get the money? And nobody knew who you were. So lists of people who were reliable or unreliable also became very valuable for the for the merchants, the shopkeepers. And so that was quite an early thing. Again, this this started to happen in the 19th century. And those credit lists grew up and became credit agencies and then those merged with uh, consumer lists and became the kind of data brokers we have today, where they have a history of your your credit behavior and also of stuff that you're interested in, stuff that you've bought. And now they can put it together with your address and how to find you and so on. And that's why they're so immensely powerful as sources of information today. So, so these would be the people that uh, essentially try to categorize groups of consumers, right, in, into certain types and would say you know the, these these people would buy this x product versus y and and that's only continued really hasn't it as we move from you know th- those early days until we get into the social media and the sort of mobile phone era where you can actually categorize people down to even finer detail right that's right i think very early on it was about very broad categories it was okay on the sales side you've got maybe people who've suffered these symptoms or we know these people are of a certain sex and age and they live in a certain area so we know that they're going to want certain things and if you know if they've bought farm implements before they probably want some more farm implements and on the other hand really quite a binary kind of scale of do you trust these people with credit or not (laughs) Uh, and but now the categories that you put people into can be so small that maybe there's only literally one or two people in a postcode or a zip code area who will fall into that category. So when we talk about things being personalised, that it, it really is, you're still essentially just giving people a niche, a marketing niche, but the the population that they're in can be so small that you can meaningfully say it's personalised. And, and that obviously brings the ethical problems about privacy but really if you think about the 19th century and these these lists where you'd written to a magazine asking for advice on your your hemorrhoids or something and somebody's now added you to a list and sold your name and address on a list marked hemorrhoids to some company you've never heard of then uh, that was also arguably not very respective not very respectful of your privacy you know, I, when I was reading that first that that first part, the the comment about that um, some of the these early research pioneers, the Archibald Crosley is one that you mentioned, and the the invitation to set up a research department, and and his response was like, you know, what is it? You know, I don't know either. And I, I all of a sudden I thought, if you were to go to to you know take a the the from from that time capsule back from that past to today, you know, now the question is, you know, we want to set up a data science department. You know, yeah. what what is it? What should it be part of it? So I thought I thought that the 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 evolution also of the support systems to kind of frame the research that's being conducted as well as the data that that were were being collected was was a pretty interesting part of the story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's the slightly different side, I guess, that that comes from the idea that you can scientifically study populations and get an insight into what they think. And that that was a really interesting marriage, I think, of commercial forces, but also psychology, that psychology was becoming a more quantitative discipline. And 
the behaviorists were were going oh well yes you know we if we if we give people the right stimuli then we can predict how they're going to behave just like rats and pigeons which is you know not not entirely true i think but that was certainly an approach that fed into the early pioneers of, uh, of of doing opinion polls and research and they also because they were a bit more statistically rigorous they they were more successful so you know you've got the the famous story of Gallup himself saying well you know i can beat these ad hoc newspaper surveys because i'm actually being a bit more methodical and thinking you're going to reach these people but you're not going to reach these other people and therefore your results will be skewed but i can i can allow for that so i think the role of early quantitative psychology in those in advertising essentially at that point although also i think in public opinion surveys for other reasons was quite important and it brought together this idea that you can get insights into people that go beyond what the people themselves consciously know about themselves with the idea that if you're statistically rigorous you can get results that will enable you to make predictions in the real world which you know as, as we know actually holds true in all sorts of fields you know, medicine and weather and all sorts of things so the early days of people saying we can bring this inside uh, and use it it benefited from that hype of everything today is scientific everything is modern uh, psychology is quite a new science but you know it, it was this it was like the big data of its day in a way we can use statistics and psychology and we can tell you what your customers want and what they're going to do and then the advertising agencies themselves wanted to be able to sell to their potential clients and say we are much more scientific and methodical than our rivals we have a research department hence as you say that great story like you know would you like to set up a research department of course i would what is it i don't know either <laughs> uh there was there was a, actually a much more recent echo i think one of the later pieces somebody saying oh you know i got this job uh, as at a big company as head of social media research uh, but none of us really knew what it meant but it was a kind of a sign that we thought it was going to be important <laughs> so in the early days I think there was an element of snake oil there was an element of hype of slightly over promising what you could actually achieve with research but then of course as they went on and started to genuinely compete and develop their methodology then it did become useful and they did find that they could actually predict to some extent what people will do and and if you're in marketing you don't need to get it right with everybody you just need to get more numbers right than your rivals are it, it's very interesting to me i worked i worked with some folks that were quantitative psychologists in a home performance testing group very early in my career and and seeing that community represented there it was really an, an interesting phenomena that this was long before kind of the big data investigations and I, so I, I i find that part of it being in, woven into your story to be fascinating i i the thing that i, I re really uh, found intriguing was uh, how we move from uh, i guess survey-based research opinion-based research to much more um behavioral based research if you like or, or research on human behavior rather, rather than people asking people what they thought actually observing what they did so uh, you know can you talk about about that evolution and how that came into the story that was i think as we started to use technology much more in our everyday lives both for actually looking for things and buying things directly but also 
you know, for all sorts of other things, traveling, looking up information, even communicating with each other, then suddenly there was a lot of data available that you hadn't had to go out and collect yourself. And I, I think the change there was that people started to realize there was all this data in the wild that wasn't, if you like, skewed by asking people questions. So people weren't aware that they were being observed in many cases or that they were being asked questions. And so they were acting much more naturally and, if you like, authentically. And so I think a lot of the researchers started to think we can actually get what people really do rather than what they say they do. I mean, I interviewed somebody from PepsiCo who was saying, well, we, you know, you can ask parents about what they put in their kids' lunchbox and they'll say, oh, you know, I put in vegetables and healthy things. Uh, but actually, we asked some families if we could put cameras in their kitchens. And when we did that, we discovered that, yes, the dad was putting his healthy stuff in the kid's lunchbox. And then the kid came home from school and tipped all that out of his lunchbox because he hadn't eaten any of it. And you wouldn't get that from asking, because obviously, if you ask someone what to put in your kid's lunchbox, they, they go, oh, no, it's all very healthy. So that kind of insight was seen as very valuable. But then the flip side of that is, because you haven't collected that data yourself and you haven't taken the care that you would take statistically if you were doing a survey and making sure that you ask the questions in an unbiased way and so on, it's the data isn't as good quality. And so how do you, how do you compensate for that? And I think for that reason, there was quite a lot of scepticism early on. People said, well, okay, yes, all this stuff is out there, but what can you really deduce from that? And also, is it really that unbiased? Social media data in particular, you think, okay, well, you're not responding to a survey from us, but you are posting things that you know other people are going to see. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I certainly, the stuff I post on social media is a highly selective picture of my life. <laughs> certainly, it doesn't include all the mess and the chaos and, and so on. So... I think people were reasonably sceptical of what you could actually glean from that, but then realised that if you combine the two, so survey is you're directly asking the question and people are consciously responding, giving you their conscious answers and you can, you can control for who they are and how you've chosen them and so on. And then out there in the wild, people spontaneously tweeting about what they're up to and what they want other people to know what they're up to, then that can give you some pointers about things that maybe you hadn't thought to ask. Yeah. I, th I think that's, that's one of the differences is somebody, I think it was Ray Pointer, said very well, you know, it's very good at answering questions that you haven't asked, but it's not very good at answering questions that you have asked. So you need to bear in mind the limitations of both of them. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is writer, presenter, and comedian, Tanandra Harkness. In the fourth of your Significance Impact articles, you wrote about Tim Berners-Lee, concerned that the internet has become a machine for monetized surveillance rather than an ecosystem of cooperative sharing. I, I love that. that. That's brilliant, Tamandra. Uh, but, and that a new vision of the web might be emerging. It, it seems like we're you know, starting where, where you've just have been commenting about this idea of moving from survey to observation to then you start talking about fusion of data to ultimately the present. Can, can you bring us from that past into to where we might be now? I think where we are now is there is a lot of data out there and the difficulty is how to select it and how to use it for, for real insight. 
And the other thing that's changing, I think, is that in the last few years, we're all much more aware of what data is out there about us and how it's being collected and who's using it. And this has changed people's attitudes, not only as individuals, but I think there's a lot of governments and regulators are starting to say you can't just essentially stalk people everywhere around the internet and watch everything they do and eavesdrop on their private conversations as they believe and then use that to sell them stuff because it's it's not right, it's it's exploitative and it's unequal, it's an asymmetrical relationship. So there are definitely moves to regulate what can be done and how much personally identifiable information about each of us can be used and sold and passed on. So one of the big things that's coming out, look at the future, is giving people much more individual control over individual data about them, either in private pods or data stores or data trusts, and letting people authorize other people to use their data for reasons that have to be explicit and in return for certain benefits. I think there's an interesting comparison to be made maybe with the the Tesco club card when that was introduced. And they very explicitly said, we're taking your information and in return, you'll get discounts and specialized offers. And nobody forced you to get a club card. But uh, if you did, then that was that was the deal that was quite explicit, whereas a lot of data collection now is not explicit. So maybe we're seeing a move back a bit towards that. But one interesting thing, I think, is that in response to that, a lot of the companies that depend on data, people like Google and Apple, are just finding different ways to do very similar things. So they're finding ways that they can target advertising to each of us without necessarily knowing who we are but inferring things from other sources of information or even letting our technology interact in a way that protects some of our privacy but hands over useful insights without, again, necessarily saying who we are. So we could get a thing where our browser is essentially haggling with a data broker to say, I'm going to tell you that uh, we, we in this browser are interested in this stuff and so you can send us information about this stuff. Uh, But we're not going to tell you any more personal details about the person that's using this browser. I I think what's interesting about that is it kind of reveals that, in a sense, the companies don't care about us individually. They don't care who we are, as long as they can effectively use insights about what we do and what we like and what we might buy. Were you surprised that that was, you know, where the story ended up? Because you kind of th- imagine these things in your head when you're commissioning them, right? And I thought the story would be ever, ever more personalization and uh, infringement of privacy. But actually, you know, we've got to the point where we can get all this information about people, but we don't really need it. We don't really need it to do what we want to do. So was that a surprise to you? It was in a way that I, I did think that the tech companies might spend more energy trying to get around regulation to continue to know who we personally were rather than going, that's fine, we don't care who you personally are, as long as we can leverage the information that's there. Although, I mean, in a way, I wasn't surprised because the whole ethos of it has always been, we just want the information to do what we want to do. Uh, and we, you know, we're not really trying to get inside your head, or we, as long as you do what we want you to do, <laughs> uh, or as long as we can predict what what you're going to do. But in another way, I think, I think what will be interesting will be to see how much 
people do go down that route. Given the choice, how many people go, yeah, I want to really hide my personal information from you and only give you things that I foresee myself will benefit me. Because some other research I've been looking at since, since I wrote the article, suggests that, in fact, people have a much more sophisticated relationship with personalised adverts, that although we kind of hate them, we kind of hate being stalked, but we also kind of like them if they pick up on things that we like about ourselves. So if you get an advert that's personalised to you because, I don't know, because you have bunions, then you don't like that. <laughs> and and I think you, you get to a certain age and they start advertising things like slippers to you. And then the next stage, apparently, I was talking to some friends the weekend, the next stage is they start advertising incontinence pads and then funeral plans. And nobody <laughs> likes that kind of personalization. But no. if they start advertising things to you saying, well, we can tell that you're very, uh, you know, you're a very caring person or you're a very sophisticated person. So you're getting this advert. Well, that's kind of nice, isn't it? Isn't it nice that the algorithm recognizes what a caring person or what a sophisticated person you are? And that, I think, is going to be very interesting that we will actually find out maybe that people don't mind that much as long as what the algorithm reflects back to them is a nice reflection. Maybe maybe we're heading more for a future of, um, what's the picture of Dorian Gray, That's the, that even though the tech companies have a picture of us in their attic that's hideous and needs incontinence pads and slippers, <laughs> the one they reflect back to us is, uh, is a sophisticated, caring, outdoorsy, uh, socially responsible person. And so uh, we continue to give them our data. I, I, I'm sort of picturing this algorithmic affirmation as being the target of the future. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot in that. I mean, that's kind of where my book is going. So that's why I'm continuing to do this research. But I think our relation with people gathering data about us is very ambivalent. I think however much we say, oh, it's awful and what about our privacy, there are aspects of it that we like. Oh, definitely. I mean, this goes back to things like recommender systems, doesn't it? On whether it's Amazon or other retailers or, or Netflix or other streaming services. We like being told, oh, we, we've seen you like this. You might also like this. It help, It certainly helps speed up the choice process uh, in sort of a quite time pressured world we live in, doesn't it? Yes. And when they get it right, I think it can be a good balance between being faced with a ridiculous range of choices and no way to, to pick between them and just getting recommended the same things you've already seen. I think the good recommendation systems manage to say, yes, well, you like this. Here's something that's a bit different, but we think you might like it. Why don't you try it? And then so you do discover new things, but the new things that statistically you're more probable to like them. <laughs> yeah, I find this, this question of this uh, tension between privacy, disclosure and the value that you receive for having this information being released. And, you know, there's a, there is your point earlier about that, that there's a greater awareness that, that the information, that your transactions are monitored and somehow that's feeding into to systems is becoming more, people are more aware and they may be changing somewhat their behaviors as a consequence. Maybe the browser that they're using or that they're going to use when it's locked down. 
But there is also what you've just said, which is this this value that is received, and also this idea of, of maybe this affirmation that might come of this. And I, I, I think that's going to continue to evolve. And it seems like it, it, it harkens back to the, the issue of, of psychologists being involved in this discussion. You know, what, what, helps, what helps engage people? In- yes, exactly. I think that's where the qualitative side of psychology also comes in, that good marketers say, but if we present it to people like this, then we're making them feel good. And... I mean, we no longer live in an age where you can only afford to buy the stuff you absolutely need to keep you alive. You know, we're not we're not the I don't know nineteenth century farmers looking through the Sears catalogue and going, "I just want the most efficient axe because that's the only thing that's going to stop us freezing to death in the winter." We spend a relatively small amount of our income now, most of us, on the things that keep us alive, and so we get choices and we want to buy the things that make us feel good in some way or another. And if the process of the advertising is also contributing to making you feel good, then why wouldn't you buy it? I, I got one, one question that, that comes to mind is, how has writing this art, these four articles changed the way you behave? I mean, th- does this awareness alter you, you know, your, your interactions? <laughs> In a way, I think I've always been, well, not always, Ever since writing the first book, which was all about data, I have been quite careful about what data I give away. And I default to sharing less data, even though a little bit of me has always said, of course, this is rather selfish. You know, if I don't let the navigation system follow my location, for example, I'm not helping to contribute my data to making it more efficient. Uh, And in a way, it's made me more thoughtful about how these kind of systems can be a social benefit as well as just kind of evil tech behemoths exploiting our data for their own uses. Especially when it comes to systems that can let us have more explicit say about how our data is used, I am starting to think, well, actually, you know, really, how does how much does it matter to me if if this system knows what items I'm buying online? If it, if it can actually help things become more efficient, very often they don't. They are just for somebody to sell me stuff. But in some ways, I think maybe it's maybe a little bit more relaxed. Although that that is starting from a position of being ultra, ultra privacy conscious. But perhaps I'm now thinking, well, maybe this isn't the only important thing, actually. My individual privacy as an individual person. Maybe I should think more about what are the broader social uses this stuff is put to. Is it being put to just try and get us all to change our behaviour in some way or another? In which case, I should probably zoom out and worry about the broader social uses of data and a bit less about my individual data being used to sell me slippers. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Demandra, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure and hope you enjoy the articles. Oh, indeed. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, and other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.